And I remember thinking in the early days, oh, for my clients to be really, really happy, they need this 80 slide deck. And I'm just going to burn myself out. I'm going to get up at 3 a.m. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get out this 80 slide deck with the research insights in it. And that would take so much more of my time, right? And then I burn myself out. And then nobody would look at all the 80 slides. Well, they'd listen to me drone on for two hours about them, but then they probably didn't look at them again. Welcome to Growth Unscripted. The badass professionals. The real questions. The truth behind how top execs got to where they are and how you can follow in their footsteps. Now here's your host, Betts CEO and founder, Carolyn Betts. Welcome back to Growth Unscripted. Today, our guest is Amy Buckner Chowdhury, founder and CEO of Answer Lab. Thanks for joining me, Amy. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to talk with you today. Absolutely. And I don't know if our guests know this, but you and I have known each other for well over a decade at this point. And so it's just fun to have a close friend who's also an entrepreneur and CEO uh, join me. And, uh, you know, so a lot of the stuff we're going to be talking about, I just have been so impressed over the years of knowing you with just the business that you've built and uh, everything that you've done. Uh, I'd love to start with your background. You know, you grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, and would love to hear a little bit about your upbringing and and what that was like for you. Yeah. So uh, I am originally a Southerner. Uh, I did grow up in a very rural area uh, just outside of Knoxville called Carnes. Uh, That's this high school that I went to. And the little community was called Hardin Valley. And it was a really interesting place to grow up because it, it was a really strong sense of community. And I learned so much about that in terms of what I'd want to create for myself and create for my company later in life. When you grow up in a rural area like that, you get to know everyone and all your neighbors. And I think it's really influenced how I think about uh, making connections with others in a work environment that's very disconnected in ways as we're all remote. And at Answer Lab, we have people working in 21 different states. And it's like, how do you create that same kind of community that you had and you grew up with in a small town in Tennessee? And um, yeah, influenced me a great deal. And then you you ended up going to school at Vanderbilt in Tennessee. And how did you end up making that decision? Oh, that's a great question. I applied to nine different schools and I was rejected from three, waitlisted at three and accepted at three. And in the end, I chose to go to Vanderbilt because of two things. One was it has an incredibly beautiful campus. And I was just so inspired by it. Of course, it's a great school, but then on top of it, it was just the campus is gorgeous, especially in the spring. And my boyfriend at the time, he and I were both valedictorians and most likely to succeed. And we both kind of went there together. Oh, wow. I did. I never knew that. Now, both valedictorians, did you go to the same high school? We did. We did. And you, in ours, you you just had to have straight A's. You didn't have to be, there wasn't one. Oh, so right. there were actually like six of us who all had straight A's. <laughs> oh my God. That does not surprise me at all. So after Vanderbilt, you ended up, you know, having been from Tennessee, staying there for college. I'm sure you, you know, traveled at some point, but you ended up making a big move internationally to Japan. 
And um, you know, I would love to hear about how you made that decision and what your experience was like there. Yeah, when I, this actually started at Vanderbilt. When I went there, we had a choice of, you know, what kinds of classes you would take. And I wanted to take a foreign language. In high school, I had taken Latin and I couldn't use it in any appreciable way whatsoever. And so when I got to college, I wanted to pick something that could be used. And I don't usually like to take the same path that everyone else takes. So I didn't want to learn French. I didn't want to learn Spanish, although I regret that now. I didn't want to learn German. So I, I thought, you know, no blonde lady from the South is learning Japanese right now. So I'm going to do that. And I loved it so much. Uh, I took it every year. I was, was ended up being essentially like my minor. I did a study abroad program uh, in the summer and lived in Hikone, Japan, which is a very small town just on, on Lake Biwa, just outside of Kyoto. It's very, you know, a very more conservative part of Japan. And I had an incredible experience with a homestay family and with college that summer. And so after graduation, I knew I wanted to go back and completely immerse myself in living there. So I worked on what's called the JET program, which a lot of people out in the Bay Area have actually heard of, but not as many across the U.S. It's called Japan Exchange Teaching. And so at that time, this was in the early 90s or mid 90s, actually, um, Japan was really looking to bring more authentic English speakers into their classrooms so that students not only would learn how to speak and uh, or just originally they were writing and reading very well, but not speaking and able to hear uh, and comprehend English as well because they weren't really connecting with native English speakers. And so this program by the Ministry of Education brought all of these native English speakers over. And so I was assigned to this town that I didn't pick <laughs> called Mururan. I didn't originally want to go to Mururan because it's in the in effect the what's essentially like Alaska in, in <laughs> Japan. It's Hokkaido. It's very cold. Uh, I wanted to go to Kyushu where it was warm, like Tennessee, but I was sent there because Mururan was sister cities with Knoxville. And it was still hands down one of the best experiences of my entire life. I miss this country dearly. It's had a profound impact on who I am as a person in many ways. One being, I learned there for the first time what it's like to be a minority in uh, another uh, country. Now, while it was very different from, I think, minorities in America, there's some similarities. And I think that has given me a lot of empathy. Secondly, What's interesting about Japan is, for me was how that country really thinks about creating experiences for people. Essentially, if you go into any store or restaurant, you know, someone who's a guest or a customer is considered almost in an elevated stature to everyone else, right? Like you really want to take care of a person and create an experience that they would love. And I think that time in Japan made me passionate about creating experiences that people love. And is why I now have a company whose sole job is to do that. And a company that really cares deeply about inclusivity because I had this first taste of what it's like to be a minority in another country. I miss that country so much, I'd go back in a heartbeat. <laughs> well, and, and you ended up taking your niece there, right? 
for a special trip? Oh, a cousin. Yeah. Cousin. Okay. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did take my cousin and her boyfriend. My husband and I took them. We had such a good time. You have the mind of a steel trap. I'm telling you, you remember every single thing I've ever told you. I'm always a little worried about that because I think, <laughs> I hope I don't contradict myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not about calling people out or anything like that. So, and everyone reserves the right to change their mind about things later on in life. So don't worry about that with me. And no, I just, I remember when you had told me that you were doing that trip. And first of all, how extremely generous it was for you to give, and also how much and how important that experience in the country that you had the multiple times that you had been and just wanting to share that with her because, you know, she hadn't had the same opportunities that you did. And I just, I think that really speaks a lot about who you are as a person and uh, wanting to share the things you love with everybody. So, um, you know, and it's interesting when you mention the languages, right? And and this is, you know, as we talk about gender and equality and just growing up, uh, my mom had um, told me I had I took French in high school, which is you know a little bit more usable than Latin in the world, but you know not Spanish, right? Growing up in California, and I so I was like I want to take Spanish, and she said, "Well, girls take French and boys take Spanish, and that's how it's going to be." And you know because of the arts and all the things and traveling to Paris, and um, yes, yeah, Spanish would have been a much more useful useful language. Well, I would have liked to have taken French as well. I visited there recently and decided, oh, I really need to learn this language. And then I tried three weeks of it and I thought, oh man, it's so much harder to learn the language when you're 47 than when you're 20. <laughs> so I have many regrets. <laughs> well, it's one of those one of those things too, where you like think it's going to be so fun and then you go to do it and you're like, I would just rather go on a hike or do something else because this is, you know, how long is it going to take me before this actually is usable in the world? So I, I get it. So you found your passion for user research during your experience in Japan. And you came back to the US and um, you were hired at a startup, a user research startup. And, you know, tell me about that. Yeah, actually, just before uh, when I came back to Japan, I worked at a, a startup called Smart Planet. Now, that actually wasn't a user research startup. The next one I went to was that was a startup whose mission was to democratize education. And most of its funding had come from SoftBank, and it was using a collection of on online uh, content and tutorials and software uh, 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 classes from Ziff Davis University. And so I had this job there initially that was sort of a Jane of all trades. It was very early stages. So I would kind of assist the CEO with things he needed. And I would sit and put together a Gantt charts of all the things the executives promised they'd do from one meeting to the next. And then I kind of bring them to the next executive team meeting and help hold them accountable. It was such an interesting experience to see there how decisions were made. Now, this was 1998, 1999. I was watching how executive teams would decide what changes would happen to a website. And so you had an engineering team, you had the marketing team, you had biz dev, you had content. And there was no one sitting at the table saying, let's make this change because this is what the users want and the users have told us this is what we need. It usually was a lot of the advocacy based on, well, what might be a little more easier for uh, engineering to put together? Or what, what's part of our content strategy or what's part of our marketing agreements that we have? 
And I think it opened my eyes to how important it is to talk to users and hear their perspective. So I was really grateful at that time. This company brought in a, another startup called Vividence to test the experience of the website. And I got to lead that project and present the results back to everyone and tell the story of what people not only thought about the experience, but how that was then reflecting on the uh, impressions of the brand. And it was, I felt like I had a gold mine of data because it was so rich. It was so powerful. It finally helped everyone see, I thought, you know, the kind of a little bit of a disconnect between some decisions that were being made and what the people wanted. And that's when I found my inner voice or calling for wanting to stand up for users everywhere. Like, how do we create experiences that they would love? So I went to work for that software company, uh, Vividence, which was focused on user experience. Although we didn't call it that back then, we called it customer experience management. And I worked there for four years. I helped build up our automotive practice. And then I left there to start Answer Lab. So I learned everything about research that I could there and then and then started Answer Lab. So it was a really great experience to be able to sit at the table at such an early stage in my career to see how decisions got made and then to feel, feel here's where my calling should be because this is what often gets missed in companies. Well, right. And and you you saw the gaps, right? And you know, especially as the you know, young up and comer sitting at the table watching this all go down, just thinking there's a better way. And and then having the ability to work with that company. And it, you know, it is really interesting to think back that things that seem to be common sense to us now weren't always that way, right? You know, what does the user think? Oh, well, you know, everyone had their own agenda on that executive team, which is just, you know, at the end of the day, it really is about the customer and what their experience is. And, you know, we both know, you know, I talk about UI on a daily basis and, you know, products that have good ones and bad ones and what that is like or, you know, glitchy, et cetera. And, you know, I think you really have and have the ability to, you know, change the world on on the work that you're doing and how people engage. So obviously you were working at because uh, I just love hearing about like the, what was it like, I'm going to go do this now, right? I'm going to start this. What was that process for you working at Vivident and making the decision to go out on your own? Well, you know, I wasn't initially certain I was going to go out on my own when I left Vivident. I just was feeling a little burnt out. So I left and went to volunteer at Susan G. Komen for the Cure. My, I have a lot of women in my family who have breast cancer. So I would just go spend Fridays there doing whatever I could. I trained for a marathon. And then in the fall, I started getting the itch thinking, oh, I could go out on my own and um, started talking to someone that I used to work with about this idea. And then went down to visit a couple of former clients at Nissan and Honda. And, you know, pitched the idea of the company to them and got their feedback. And, you know, then I, then it was clear there was some, what I was originally pitching to them was the software that they had been using before was really a quantitative tool that you would use mostly once something was live. So you're sort of benchmarking an experience on a site, but you really need when you're developing a product a suite of tools and method research methodologies to help you get that product out the door. And that's what I was pitching to them. Hey, what if you went to a place where they could handle all the research 
from the very beginning to the end to even when it's live. And this software is only one piece of it. So there's the rest of it you need to do, which is understanding what to build, iteratively testing it to make sure it's designed correctly. What if you had a partner who could do all of that? And they were very receptive. So my first clients ended up being uh, GM and Honda and Nissan. And then a former colleague joined me and we brought on uh, eBay and Yahoo. And we just really focused on digital, digitally focused brands that were Fortune 500 companies. And it kept going from there. I mean, that's pretty amazing, right? Because you were new to the starting your own company, right? They had had experience with this other organization. And because of the relationships that you had had from working with them previously, they trusted you and they liked the way that you were thinking about innovating in the space and, and doing something a little bit differently. But then eBay, right? As And we all know that you're anyone that's tried their hand at enterprise selling, um, knows that bringing companies like eBay and I won't name other names of, of companies that I know are your clients unless you say them first. But, you know, that's a pretty, you know, how did you end up, you know, bringing on those companies so early um, in starting Answer Lab? Well, first, it has to start with that being your strategy. <laughs> and that has always <laughs> been our strategy that we really work with companies that we know are going to invest a lot in digital because we want to develop deep multi-year partnerships, trusted relationships. We don't want to come in and solve one problem and then leave and, and not be there again. We think that there's more meaning to having this really deep, trusted collaboration together. And so to have that deep relationship, you need to have a lot of work that needs to get done, a lot of digital properties. And so, so first and foremost, you say that's your strategy. And then we just deliver amazing work. I mean, if you always think your strategy is in the greater sense to create experiences that people love. And then that means we want users to have experiences they love. We want clients to have experiences they love working with us. And we want every person working at Answer Lab to have an experience they love. When you put that, that piece of the pie together, you can't lose. So that's really where we focused. And, you know, it's harder to negotiate those contracts in the early days than it is today because <laughs> we were so small. But, but we just made that the strategy. And once you have a handful of clients that are in that space and you've done good work, you know, just it just keeps evolving. Right. And those people, you know, eventually leave those companies, they go to new ones and then <laughs> give you a call. Hey, you, you know, know, I started this. <laughs> you, do B, you do B2B selling. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's always great when, you know, somebody I see they on their LinkedIn when they change jobs. I'm like, ooh, you know, congratulations on the new job. <laughs> oh, I was just thinking about you. We're building a new team. Oh, funny. I, I'm pretty sure that's exactly what you were hired to do. Now, you know, it's interesting because a lot of what we are talking about on this podcast in particular is it's you know growth unscripted and the ethos of it is obviously the amazing journeys that entrepreneurs and other executives have been through but also really bringing transparency to the ups and downs and you know something that you had just brought up when you talked about leaving dividends was burnout and i think that in today's you know, with everything that's happened, obviously with the pandemic and, and even pre-pandemic, right? The amount of pressure put on people, you know, especially in the corporate world and, you know, also pressure that's put on other people that don't have the same resources that we do. But, you know, particularly to your experience, you know, I would, I think just 
because you left Vividence with no job. You went and volunteered <laughs> for breast cancer, which is very noble. You took time for yourself to train for a marathon. It gave you the opportunity to have the time to reflect to start your own company. But you know, what happened and what did that burnout look like that it was so bad that you just like peaced out? I think it's reflecting on it. I do think a little bit of it was self-imposed, right? Um, And I say that in hindsight, because I think early in our careers, we hold ourselves up to an extraordinarily high standard of what client service looks like that may not match what they really need. And I remember thinking in the early days, oh, for my clients to be really, really happy, they need this 80-slide deck. And I'm just going to burn myself out. I'm going to get up at 3 a.m. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get out this 80-slide deck with the research insights in it. And that would take so much more of my time, right? And then I burn myself out. And then nobody would look at all the 80 slides. Well, they'd listen to me drone on for two hours about them, but then they probably didn't look at them again. If someone sent me 80 slides, I'd be like, uh, can you get this down to like five? I'm sure there's more in-depth research. But, you know, anyway, that's... Yeah. Yeah. So I I don't think that's, I think we as leaders have to do a better job uh, at supporting, especially those earlier in their career to understand what is the real thing that moves the needle on the client relationship. Because one thinks that it might be give everything you possibly can. And if you give of all your time to where you deplete yourself, that's client service. And that's an experience a client's going to love. That's not exactly what an experience is that's going to help a client look love you. What helps them love you is understanding, well, what's the journey to working with you like? And do they know you have it handled? And then can you tell them the five things they need to work on with their website when they're done, right? So I think that's a lesson that I've learned having... I'm glad that I, I've been a researcher you know, um, in my past because it helps me have a lot greater understanding of what it's like to lead an organization of researchers. It, you know, it's really interesting because... I think as, you know, and we'll talk more about how, you know, when you founded Answer Lab, you wanted it to be about the company and not about you. And I can tell you, I really wish I would have thought more about that when I started Bets and put my name on the company. And somebody did tell me, don't do that. And I, you know, already had, was down that road. And for whatever reason, I thought it was a good idea. But, you know, I, I still... It's interesting the evolution that happens with people in their professional careers where, you know, for years and years and years at Bets, every time I got a client complaint, you know, my heart rate would go up. I would panic. I would be angry. I would, you know, start to figure out, you know, who do I blame? You know, and it was really terrible and unhealthy for me and unhealthy for the company. And, you know, now... I take these things as normal day-to-day business where people are communicating, you know, how we can improve, giving feedback and making our company better. And, you know, when people have a complaint, I look into it very calmly. But, you know, that amount of pressure, I, I, I really relate to what you said about the self-imposed over-indexing on perfection. And, you know, it's been really interesting as the, you know, hiring surge has come back and companies are now making up for lost time in 2021. And, you know, we're finding ourselves under-resourced. And so I'm having to tell clients, oh, hey, 
we really want to work with you, but we're going to have to wait, you know, a few weeks until, you know, we get some new people trained up or until people's bandwidth. And I thought people would be like, I don't want to work with the new people. I was really nervous about this. And the feedback has been like, great. You know, let us know when that person's trained. <laughs> and, you know, so I, my fear and whatever it was just was so much more powerful and unnecessary than I had to make it. You know, whatever was going on in my head was not the reality of what was happening in the world. So, um, you know, I, I think that's really interesting to look back and realize that when I'm sure at the time it was, you know, you just wanted to do a great job for your clients and it felt like just too much. So, you were also talking about, you know, so, so you, as you were building Answer Lab, bringing on all these, you know, amazing companies, culture was at the, you know, forefront of what you were building at the same time that you were looking and building a strategy around business development and the types of clients that you're looking to work with. And, you know, early on, what did that look like for you? What was important for you when you started the company in terms of the culture that you were creating? You know, the, when I started this company, um, I was, of course, very passionate about being this voice of users everywhere and then helping clients be more successful with their digital experiences. But I think the number one passion for me has always been to create a company environment where everyone feels they can bring their whole selves and they can thrive. So many companies think about how am I going to get the most out of my people or how am I going to pay the least for the most work or how am I going to get everyone like most in their career? And I think of it like how do we help people thrive as a whole person from their health, their wellness, their family experience? We can no longer separate a work experience from someone's personal experience, they've always been very interlaced with one another and even more so now with the pandemic and with the remote work. And so I think about how do we lift every single person up to thrive as a human, not just in their work experience. And so that meant in the early days, we were doing things like researching what's the best fitness tracker on the market before anyone really had them to figure out how could we give one to everyone in Answer Lab and then have, you know, wellness competitions and walk-in talks together. And that was well over 10 years ago. Well over 10 years ago, we thought, you know what, it, it doesn't work to have a, an office first environment. People thrive when they can choose where and when they can do their best work. So we went remote first a long time ago. It's made the the pandemic switching a lot easier for us. And I think as, as a CEO, what I'm most excited about with scaling this company is how do we bring the culture we've created to more people because people deserve an amazing work culture? And then how do we use our examples and the things that we've chosen to do as an example for other companies to see? And that's why we want to socialize the work that we're doing it's why we started the Human Centered Work Project, where we do an enormous amount of research into what creates exceptional work experiences, particularly during the pandemic and during our social justice and racial reckoning at the moment. You know, how, how is that landing for people and how do companies need to stand up and rise to this occasion? We want to be this force for good out there in the world and inspire others with our work. And that's what motivates me most as a person and as a CEO and, and why I love running this company. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I still remember when we were having dinner a little over a year ago and we were all talking about, you know, the pandemic was coming. And you were one of the first people of our group to really uh, recognize that that was happening, right? And saying, hey, guys, you know, this is coming. And I think we were all very worried, right? You know, everything was starting to lock down across the world. And, you know, I would love for you to share what those things were that you had really almost predicted that this was going to happen. Let's see. I'm trying to remember the timeline, but... It was early March, and I sensed this was coming. I had just come back from a trip to India that I was even on the fence about going to because it was just starting to percolate across the globe. Got back, and when we started to see there were cases in the U.S., I had had a very a former colleague and dear friend have a near-death experience in December, which I'm confident in retrospect was COVID. And so, you know... It's better to overreact to this than to to be slow. So we had in the first week of March, we were already doing an executive planning session together in Santa Cruz. And we basically redirected the entire planning session to focus 100% on COVID response. In that, we knew the main thing we needed to do was stop everybody in the company from traveling. We needed to stop all of our research that was in person. Now, to give you some context here, 75% of our business was in-person research. So either in our labs or in people's offices or in people's homes. So that was about 90 projects over the next three months were all going to be in person. And I knew we had to just basically say, this has to stop. And how will we do that as a business and still be able to support all of our employees and keep the train running? So we decided to issue a call to stay safe and save the 75%. And we asked everybody to convert convert the 90 projects from being uh, in person to being done over Zoom or any other research tool that a client would agree to and to keep everything on its original timeline, to educate clients and what this new experience would be like, and to... um, basically keep this train running so that we could save the revenue of the business and make sure we're protecting everybody's jobs. And this company rose to the occasion in a way that when I think back on it, I still get very teary-eyed. They converted all but one project. And it was a huge testament to every team in the company. And in particular, our marketing team basically from scratch created a ton of marketing materials to help our clients understand what this new world of remote would look like. Um, We produced this ultimate guide to remote research that we not only helped our clients make this transition, but then we issued a call to the rest of the research community and said, it's our moral obligation to go remote. Because in the early days of March, so many companies were hesitant. They weren't really getting on board with this. And we wanted to lead the way. So when I look back on 16 years of this business, I truly think that was my proudest moment to see what people did. It was not easy, but I think everyone saw we don't want to get COVID and we don't want to give it to our clients and we don't want to create situations where we give it to our participants. I think most people in the company were very aligned that our safety and putting ourselves and our our entire ecosystem of stakeholders, their health first is more important than the business, even if it meant that we were going to lose revenue, it was more important to put people's safety and health first. 
And I don't think anyone in Answer Lab would disagree with that. Everything happened so fast too. And the fact that early, early March, you were already you know, making all these changes and the amount that what I was also very, very impressed with was the turnaround that you guys were able to get this out to the clients and, you know, the swiftness in which this change occurred. And I imagine, and, you know, from that, right, because you, you know, kept all your clients, but one converted them to remote in a very, very short period of time. But then, from my understanding, it gave you the opportunity to then expand your business into more companies because they needed the remote research as well. Well, so what happened is because we kept everything on the original timeline, we saved all of the revenue that quarter. So I think most companies, if you look back over what their performance over last year, everybody took a hit in Q2 and we did not. We didn't skip a beat. And a lot of companies came from a place of fear in proactively, you know, doing the layoffs. You know, I heard a lot of agencies in the media space uh, and research space, you know, laying off 10% of their people to be safe, right? That's the last thing I wanted to do. And so I just got on the PPP loan as just in case. So that was in our back pocket as fast as possible. So we had that as, you know, if if clients stopped coming, if they weren't making, we weren't getting their POs in time or they weren't making their payments or if it all fell out from under us, I'd want to be able to save as many jobs as possible. So actually, you know, the second piece of our mantra through all of that was our priority is job preservation. And I don't think everybody had that attitude, but see what that meant was because we put people first, their safety first and their jobs first, that when Q2's blip was was over and some of the country began waking back up and clients fully transitioned over to doing remote work and got used to it and got used to working from home, that we were ready with a full team, ready to take advantage of all of the work that was coming our way. And we grew 30% last year. Yeah, that's great. It's interesting too, because you know, your business, you have contracts, right? Like long-term contracts with people that they've committed to, right? Or is it, how does that work? We have a combo, all kinds of contracts, both long-term, shorter term, fixed fee, project-based. It's a whole medley. Yeah. I mean, for us, 90% of our clients paused that first week of COVID. And we lost, you know, 90% of our business. And so we were forced to do layoffs. There was no way that we could have stayed in business and not done it. And so, you know, I really envy the way that you handled it and wish and wish that I could have been in that same position because, you know, with people first being our first and leading value, having to be on the other side of it and being really having the only option possible, having to part ways with very, very valued team members that was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life, actually. You know, harder than breaking off the engagement, harder than, you know, (laughs) other things. Like, and, you know, maybe there's the recency effect, but I really can't think of any greater challenge than being a leader in a business and having to say goodbye to people that you would never under any other circumstances do that to to preserve the rest of the jobs and the company moving forward. So I, you know, I, I think that, you know, anyway, I just, I love that you, and 
it, you really came out ahead because a lot of these other user research companies, you know, took the advice of like cut early and a lot of the things that we hear out there. And um, yeah, had we not had 90% of our clients put everything on pause, we would have definitely made different decisions. So earlier you mentioned um, the human-centered work project that you... And I know this is public information, but you've also committed a million dollars to this effort. And I think it's a very amazing statement to not only create a huge project, but also such a large financial commitment toward a cause and passion that you truly believe will help change the world. And so I would love to hear about you know, the how this idea came out and came to be in the first place. And what some of the things are that you guys have done, because uh, I know there's been a lot of work so far over the last year, plus uh, that you guys have invested into this initiative? Yeah. So we decided a good three or four years ago that creating inclusive research experiences for our clients and creating an inclusive business ourselves is going to be a primary business strategy for us for many years to come. And so we'd already started doing quite a bit of work internally to kind of revamp how we do research. How do we ask questions uh, in a survey, for example? Are we asking gender in a binary way? Or are we putting gender on a spectrum for answer choices? There was so much we needed to just redo several years ago that were outdated ways of think, asking about race and ethnicity and gender and marital status and a host of things that we would want to ask about to invite people into a, a study. So we started there. We uh, did quite a bit of work internally to make sure we were building more of an inclusive culture. We hired a, an outside firm called ReadySet to coach and train our company uh, during our, our summit. But it always felt like we were just at the beginning, right? And I think this past year in 2020 gave up. We had a really great foundation heading into that to be very brave and much more bold about what we want to do. That allowed us to be able to say, well, look, we know as a business strategy, this was working and we know that it's going to be important going forward. So we're going to make this commitment of a million dollars. And it's across a host of things. It's continuing to evolve our research practices so that we have more inclusive methodologies and build up our skill set in accessibility research and experience gap research and how we continue to do recruiting for studies. Um, it's part of building our own DEI practice and expanding it and its reach. It's about building our own tools and workshops and training internally on how we create an anti-racist work environment. And then it's about the independent research that we do, which is more of the human-centered work project, to learn how we create these work experiences that work for everyone. We spent the last half of the last year fully immersed in interviews, diary studies with um, BIPOC uh, participants and with caregivers to understand how we all need to evolve our workplaces to better support everyone. And it has been so enlightening, the things that we've learned. And then we take those insights and translate them into change in Answer Lab and tell those stories too, so that other companies can, can try them. So part of our research has involved looking at a framework from 
an academic named Tima Okun, who has identified what are some of the attributes of sort of a, a white dominant work culture? What do those attributes look like? And we've identified what are the opposite attributes of that? What would be more inclusive of everyone? And our team, People and Culture team, devised an incredible program last week, a sense-making lab uh, for the company, where we introduced these concepts of what a white dominant culture looks like and then what the opposite of them are. We asked everyone in the company to identify what are some of these attributes that you see here and what would you like to see changed? And then we divided everyone into groups and asked them to uh, brainstorm on concepts for how we create the opposite of some of those attributes. And so I'll give you a couple of examples. Yes, absolutely. One is classic notions of professionalism are seen as very white dominant. They may not be inclusive for everyone's style of how they communicate. Uh, if you think about people's work, their home environments, what's behind them in their home, right? Uh, many um, white colleagues like to connect with each other about what's going on in their backgrounds and uh, like to comment on what's going on in their homes. But uh, other cultures may not like that and may find that very uncomfortable and want to keep that way more private. There are notions of professionalism and how you communicate, whether or not you bring more spirited anger to a conversation or you speak more cautiously. You know, there are just so many different nuances to being professional versus being able to feel that you can be your authentic self, right? And when there's a gap between those two, you can't bring your whole self to work. So that's one thing we're working on. How do we make sure people feel they can truly be authentic in the work environment? And what are some concepts we could put in place to support that? The second is, and this is really true in a research organization, is the notion of perfectionism. And that was, you know, back to the story of my early days, staying up and making the 80 slide deck. We wanted to make it perfect for the client. And if you had a comma misplaced or if you had, you know, anything remotely off, you know, that was a big deal. And we have these high standards. We can't ask people to be perfect. People cannot be perfect. It's not realistic. So instead of having an organization where culture is one of perfectionism, how about a culture that is about learning and development and growth from our mistakes and um, all of us being richer because of it, right? And so we're talking through how do we make that more a part of who we are? And then a third one, and there, I think there are five or six, but the, the, the third one that really speaks to me is we often measure progress in terms of more growth in your revenue, growth in your EBITDA. But how do you measure your growth really in terms of how much you're furthering your purpose and your mission as a company and tying everything you do to purpose rather than financial metrics? And I think we are a very purpose-oriented company, but we don't always measure the growth and the achievement of our purpose. And I would love to be able to change that about, about our company. So these teams are all meeting on these ideas uh, that they've come up with to address these different aspects that might be more white culturally dominant. And um, I signed a CEO action pledge around DEI. And tied to that is a day of understanding in April. And in that day, I'm going to listen to everyone share their ideas. And then as an organization, we're going to vote on which ones we will make into KRs into the next quarters so that we can make meaningful change on this. I don't see 
DEI as a separate business function at Answer Lab. I see it woven into every single thing we do and fabric of what we do. And it starts with me. And what's the format in which you're having everyone share their ideas? Yeah, so they're they're putting together kind of like a cup answering three or four questions in a couple of slides and then sharing that with me and then sharing it with each other and then voting. So how many employees do you have? 160. 160. So everyone in the so I'm I'm just curious because this is very a great idea. Ah, they're in teams. Okay. <laughs> right? So it's like 160. So they have teams now. Are these teams of people they normally work with on a day-to-day basis? Or are they kind of scrambled throughout? Like how did... I'm just very curious because I think other leaders would love to implement this in their company because it's a really brilliant idea of the structure so people can basically take your idea and, and do it for themselves, myself included. <laughs> Well, I feel like maybe I'll ask Mitra and Shakima to put together a, a nice uh, blog article on this because honestly, the how they put the teams together was something that happened like magic uh, behind the scenes. It, they took a 10-minute break in the sense-making lab while everyone did a bio break and somehow magically got the teams together. So I actually don't know what their founding principle was on the teams other than hoping they'd work well together. Yeah. I mean, it's also a fun exercise, I would think, to work with people that you don't work with. You know, I'm sure your team is very collaborative and cross-functional, but there's some you know, people that work more closely together with 160 people than others. So, well, I, I think that's that's great. I think just the whole process, right, of really giving people the opportunity to reflect and uh, brainstorm and come up with ideas. And I think that people love having a voice. Um, and also, I think you know, for us, the best ideas come from the team and the people that are you know, doing the work and working with everybody. And, and I think that a lot of leaders feel like there's pressure for them to always come up with all the ideas and everything. But really, I think what you're doing is, is really great. And I think I'm going to do the same thing at BETS. I've got a great book for you to read. It's called Reinventing Organizations. Okay. And uh, you can actually get one that's illustrated. And uh, it's a fast read for a busy CEO. And it has some incredible concepts in it around how to become a green organization, which is essentially a company that has, rather than kind of top-down management, is instead teams organized to have an enormous amount of authority and ability to make their own decisions uh, to move the company forward. And there are many concepts from being a green company that I think would be really well suited for most of us to start adopting. And we're starting to explore that. We do some of them already, but we have a lot of opportunity. That's great. Well, any other advice or what other advice as we close out this conversation uh, do you have for other leaders? You've already given a lot of really amazing insight and advice, but anything else you'd like to close on as we wrap up today? Uh, I think fundamentally, I would say that leaders cannot think of creating diverse, equitable, inclusive work experiences as the job of their people and culture teams or the job solely of HR. It has to be woven into the fabric of everything you do to make it a reality. And I think it is a not only a moral imperative, but a business imperative that companies begin to do this and make meaningful progress 
because we won't be able to retain the best talent and achieve all the things you want to in a company if you don't have a work environment that truly allows every individual to bring their whole selves to work and thrive. That's great advice and insight. And I absolutely agree. Thank you so much for joining me today. And every time I talk to you, I always have, I was writing down the measuring purpose here as you were talking. And um, it really gave me something to think about of, you know, how we can measure our purpose of you know, changing the future of recruiting and, and really build upon that. So thank you. And I know our listeners will get a lot out of this conversation as well. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Growth Unscripted is powered by Bets. From fully customizable end-to-end recruiting services to a platform featuring 15,000 vetted job-seeking professionals, Bets connects the most extraordinary go-to market talent with the most innovative companies in the world. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes with badass executives and check us out at BetsRecruiting.com for more information on how we build companies. 